Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amika na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu with Tabi Solohoko and Tami Guza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN envoy warns of a high risk of genocide in the Central African Republic. Rebels in South Sudan say they are ready to lay down their arms. And the first phase of Syria peace talks conclude in Geneva. In economics, court order halts planned strike at South African gold mines. And in sports news, Gabon and DRC qualify for the knockout stage of the African Nations Championship. But first up, the news with Tabiso Lehoku. With the Central African Republic's new interim president, Catherine Sambapanza, set to take office today, the country slid into further violence yesterday. This a day after UN envoy warned the conflict-riven country could descend into genocide. UN officials urged country nations to reinforce the military mission, struggling to contain the strife that claimed 10 more lives yesterday. The United States says Iran's absence from Syria peace talks would have no impact on the nuclear deal being brokered between Tehran and willpowers. Washington has spent months laying the ground with Moscow and the United Nations for the Syria peace conference dubbed Geneva 11, which opened in the Swiss town of Monroe yesterday. The U.S. Secretary, the U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, on Sunday invited Iran to the talks but withdrew his invitation less than 24 hours later. Human Rights Watch says Syria is by far the deadliest armed conflict in 2013. In its annual world report, the Rights Watch dog says rather than targeting only opposition combatants, the international humanitarian law requires the government indiscriminately attack civilians in areas held by the armed opposition. Southern African Director of Human Rights Watch, Tiseke Kasamba, explains. Despite the horrific abuses which continued in 2013 in Syria, um, not enough pressure was applied to end um, this conflict. Um, in fact, Russia, backed by China, has consistently protected the Syrian government. For Kenyan author uh, Binyabanga Wainana has announced that he's gay to protest laws criminalizing homosexuality on the continent. The prize-winning writer marked his 43rd birthday with an online essay in which he writes how he regrets not telling his mother that he is gay before she died. His story contributes to an increasingly hot debate about gays in Africa, where it is illegal to have homosexual sex in most countries. Wainana says he came out to help preserve his dignity. He has lashed out at a new legislation further criminalizing homosexuality in Nigeria and Uganda. A new project to establish best practices for tracking stunting has been launched in Malawi. The project is funded by the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, supported by the government of Malawi, the World Food Programme and other members of the Scaling Up Nutrition Initiative. 
World Vision has been selected by the WFP as the lead NGO partner for the project. Recurrent food insecurity, poor dietary diversity and repeated illnesses are among the root causes of the stunting. A low growth for among nearly 1 million Malawian children under the age of 5. That's almost half of the country's children in this age group. South Africa has signed a formal agreement with the British Council to work together to help improve the teaching of English to young children. The British Council, a body which works globally to improve education and cultural ties, will supply expertise in the form of trainees and curriculums to help improve the training of language teachers. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Tabiso. It's 8.04 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The capacity of AU and French troops in the lawless Central African Republic to protect civilians is limited. That was the message delivered by the UN's top official on the prevention of genocide who expressed his shock at the levels of hatred between Muslims and Christian communities in the country. While the absence of a functional government and institutions has exacerbated Exacerbated the humanitarian needs on the ground, shown Bryce Peace reports. It unraveled with the overthrow of the government in March 2013. Seleka's main Muslim rebels stormed the capital, only to be confronted by Christian militias opposed to the new order. Incitement to commit violence on the basis of religion or ethnicity. The Secretary General Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, Adama Dieng, explains how this situation went from bad to worse. The violence that was initially perceived as a confrontation between ex-Seleka and anti-Balaka militia quickly evolved into a very dangerous confrontation between Muslim and Christian civilians. And the level of hatred between these communities shocked me. Incitement to commit violence on the basis of religion or ethnicity and deliberate and targeted attacks against civilians based on their identity are both factors that indicate a high risk both of crimes against humanity and of genocide. Experts called for African countries to urgently contribute troops to the AU peacekeeping force while the underlying causes of the conflict were also brought into focus. Kyung Wa Kang is the UN's Deputy Emergency Relief Coordinator. The root causes of this conflict including lack of effective, inclusive, and efficient governance institutions, poor management and distribution of access to natural resources, including diamonds, fragile social cohesion, and deep-seated feelings of marginalization must be urgently addressed. While the international community's chronic underfunding of the humanitarian response was also rebuked, with $551 million still required for the 2014 response, but humanitarian assistance remains only one element of righting the CAR ship. It is crucial to assist the transitional authorities. Leila Zarugi is the special representative for children and armed conflict. We need to send a stronger signal to perpetrators of these atrocious crimes that they will be held to account. The international community should spare no effort and use all the tools at its disposal. It is crucial to assist the transitional authorities to restore law enforcement 
and establish a judicial response to the ongoing violations. This is essential to deter further violence and start to re-establish trust among communities. The Council also heard that they had run out of time to prevent the violence from escalating and that the only option is to scale up the international response in the hopes that the country can return to some semblance of law, order and legitimacy. Sherman Bricebees at the United Nations, New York. The rebel faction of South Sudan, led by former Vice President Rick Machar, admits that it is ready to stop military action on the ground immediately for the sake of the people of South Sudan. The rebel faction, led by former Vice President of South Sudan, Rick Machar, has been at war with the government of President Salva Kiir since December 2013. Koleta Wanjohi reports. A military battle has continued between the forces of the Army of South Sudan and rebel faction led by former Vice President Riyak Mashar since December 2013. This has further dragged the peace talks between the two factions happening in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa and it has caused much uncertainty as to when or if peace will return to South Sudan. Now the rebel faction led by former Vice President Riyak Mashar says that it is ready to stop fighting just so that the people of South Sudan can find peace. Mabior Garang, the spokesperson of the rebel faction, explains that military action will not bring the peace they desire. At the end of the day, there will be no, there will really be no military solution. You know, uh, whether who controls Bor or who controls Malakal or who controls Bentiu, all of us are South Sudanese. And so at the end of the day, we are looking for a way that we can live together in our country. So it will take dialogue. So it doesn't matter uh, the military situation. At the end of the day, we're still going to have to sit down and talk and discuss our South Sudanese. President Salva Kiir on Tuesday this week announced that he will not sign any agreement which has preconditions. The rebels, however, say that at the end of the day, despite what the president says, the two parties must still have to agree on the aspects of the political detainees because the government accepted that the mediators of peace talks include it as an agenda of the talks in the first place. The rebel faction says that it was ready last week to sign the ceasefire agreement drafted under the guidelines of the Intergovernmental Agency for Development, IGAD, but the government faction is buying time. The spokesperson of the rebel faction, Mabior Garang, insists that the government is not sincere in its actions. They are not serious about peace and that they want to pursue a military option and they feel they can, they can, they can win militarily and that they don't need these peace talks, which is unfortunate because this is, this is only going to make it more costly for our people. And it's very, very unfortunate. The United Nations is reportedly requesting countries like Tanzania and Ethiopia to send their military to South Sudan. And the rebels say they are not scared about this because they know the forces will come to guard the citizens of South Sudan and not to fight them, as is the case with Uganda. Koleta Njohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. If you have any questions or comments about our show or just want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS on plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five, or get a hold of us on our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Sub-Saharan Africa has seen a very violent start to 2014 with raging conflicts in South Sudan and the Central African Republic as well as continued violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo and attacks in Somalia and Kenya. The death tolls are huge and the individual incidents gruesome. One estimate says... Nearly 10,000 people have been killed in South Sudan in a month of warfare, while in neighboring Central African Republic, combatants in Muslim versus Christian battles have beheaded children. Alex Vines, Director of Regional and Security Studies at Think Tank Chatham House Africa Program, says compared to past decades, Africa and its people are suffering from fewer conflicts today, but several recent outbreaks of violence are cause for concern. Look, the state of the continent today compared with decades past is much better. The reality is, though, that you have different speeds of development. So parts of the continent are doing very well, impressive growth rates of 7 8%, increasing investment, growing middle class, while you have countries also that are lagging behind, that are conflict-ridden, that are highly corrupt. You even have situations of countries that neighbor each other. So, you know, we are in a different situation. It's interesting from a London perspective, the one country that the markets here are talking about, that they're really excited about for investment possibilities, and the one country that people think could really take off is Kenya. And that's despite Westgate, despite some of the Al-Shabaab attacks and, and so on. So it's a complex picture. Obviously, South Sudan, the world's youngest country, just two years old, is deeply disappointing. And Eastern Congo is is an intractable problem. You're absolutely right. It continues to be a problem, but it's nothing new. But now, you know, there are suggestions that conflicts in Africa particularly lack strong international peacekeeping. Is this right? And if so, how can it be remedied? Well, you know, Africa's got an African regional groups and the African Union have a good and distinguished tradition of mediation that has succeeded in a number of occasions over the, the past decades. And often we don't hear about it until long afterwards. So that part works. The bit that still needs to be built as part of the African peace and security architecture is the regional standby forces. So those are the ones, the rapid deployment forces that are weak, even we saw last year in West Africa, the economic community of West Africa states, ECOWAS was unable to deploy a rapid deployment force to stabilize the situation in, in Mali and needed a French intervention. We have an echo of that this year where uh, the French have had to intervene in the Central African Republic. So what this tells us is that the architecture, the concepts are fine, but actually the reality still needs investment, it needs better training, and it needs better politics, and that will take time. But I do foresee that in my lifetime the need of a European country to provide a security guarantee in Africa will be gone. The type of French intervention that we've seen last year and this year, you know, I can't see that uh, being a long-term pattern. That's something as a sticking plaster at the moment because of the problems of the rolling out of African peace and security architecture responses both at the RECs and at the African Union level. Now, Alex, you just mentioned now that there are a few success stories where African regional communities have intervened successfully. Could you just give us examples? 
Well, you know, one of the sore issues in Africa are territorial boundaries. And so the Bekasi Peninsula, for example, between northern Cameroon and Nigeria, that one went to international arbitration and the results were accepted. There are the setting up of joint development zones where there's contested space over exploitation of minerals. So there are good examples of mediation. There's good examples of mediation around electoral processes. The politics around former President Wad and accepting the election result in Senegal of Macky Sall, that had both African and international mediation. The crisis in Malawi after the death of the former president and ensuring that the military in Malawi backed the constitution, that was regional mediation as well as international mediation. So there are very good examples, often not really talked about because they're successful and fairly quiet, but we have plenty of examples of that. Now, we also know that you know, the United Nations has, over the years, dispatched a record number of peacekeepers in Africa, you know, deploying soldiers to trouble spots, yet the blue helmets and thousands of other soldiers sent also by African regional groups fail to prevent fresh spasms of violence. What could be the reason for this? We see this happening in the DRC, actually, in quite a lot of trouble spots. Well, the intervention brigade that was deployed in eastern Congo under a UN mandate were African troops, South African, Tanzanian in particular. My own view is that that response to the rebels at that time, M23, which uh, resulted in their surrender and resulted also in the Rwandan government, the neighboring government of Rwanda that has meddled in eastern Congo affairs, to conclude that it was not worth standing up to African neighbors, Tanzania in particular, but uh, also obviously South Africa, and that that was a different ballgame altogether from challenging a UN operation with, you know, kind of Nepalese or Central American or Uruguayan or Indian Pakistan troops. So that's very different. You're right that the UN still maintains significant footprint in Africa. Eastern Congo is a good example of that. South Sudan is another. So these are important missions. However, the UN has been extremely reluctant to rehat and be involved in Somalia, for example, which has actually been led by African troops of the African Union, Amazon, who have done a good job. I mean, the bravery of the Burindian troops or the Ugandans you know, is very telling in very difficult circumstances. But I think we can credit that Al-Shabaab has been pushed out of Mogadishu and is in more rural areas now, uh, remote areas in Somalia, partly to do with the effectiveness of Amazon. That was Alex Vines, Director of Regional and Security Studies at Chatham House Africa Programme, on the line from London, speaking to Channel Africa's Khusikho Dingake. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zorza Africa Amuka Na Unai For the first time, the Syrian government and opposition are 
at the negotiating table in efforts to find a political solution to the crisis in their country. The two sides, bolstered by the international community, are holding talks in Switzerland aimed at ending three years of conflict that has killed more than 100,000 people. Patrick Maigua reports from the conference. The Syrian government and opposition groups came face to face for the first time as the international community gathered in the Swiss city of Montreux to try and broker a peace deal that would hopefully end nearly three years of bloodletting in Syria. United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon set the pace for the conference. After nearly three painful years of conflict and suffering in Syria, today is a day of fragile but real hope. The Secretary General described the war in Syria as a profound tragedy whose death toll is well over 100,000 with more than 9.5 million people displaced and in need of humanitarian support. Some towns and villages have become unlivable, ruined by constant aerial bombardments. Schools, hospitals, markets, homes and places of worship have been destroyed. Car bombs, suicide and mortar attacks have terrified the population in many parts of the country. Mr. Ban said Syrians had the primary responsibility to end the conflict, determine their political system and future in line with the Geneva communique which was adopted in June 2012. The Geneva communique sets out a number of key steps for a Syrian-led transition, starting with the establishment of a transitional governing body with the full executive powers formed by mutual consent including of the military forces and security and intelligence services. The high-level conference, which was convened by the United Nations, was originally proposed by the Russian Federation and the government of the United States. Over 40 foreign ministers attended the conference. The Secretary General also urged the international community to impress on both sides the necessity of a political solution. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said a negotiated transition government formed by mutual consent was the only way out of the crisis. That means that Bashar Assad will not be part of that transition government. There can also be no place for the thousands of violent extremists who spread their hateful ideology and worsen the suffering of the Syrian people. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said efforts to broker a peace settlement for Syria will neither be simple nor quick, but added that the conference was a historic opportunity to end the suffering of the Syrian people. And on this basis, today we are starting a dialogue between the Syrian sides. They need to discuss the concrete uh, parameters to implement the Geneva Communique and the subsequent steps to be taken for the Syrian people to independently determine their own future. We very much count on external players, encouraging Syrians to achieve agreement and to refrain from and encourage the Syrian sides to refrain from any attempt to predetermine the outcome of the process and the steps which may undermine the process. We call upon all participants in the conference to do all they can to assist the government of Syria and the opposition to unite their efforts with view to eradicating terrorism. After Wednesday's international conference, focus will shift to Geneva, where the Syrian government and the opposition will begin the search for a political solution face-to-face under the chairmanship of the UN and Arab League Special Envoy, Lakta Brahimi. Patrick Maigua, United Nations, Montreux. The trial of the four suspects of the Westgate Mall massacre in Kenya late last year has opened in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. 
At least 67 people lost their lives in the terror attack and many others were critically injured. Somalia's al-Shabaab insurgents claimed responsibility for the attack. But all the four suspects of the Somali ethnic origin have pleaded not guilty to the terrorist charges. Mwagi Konya reports from Nairobi. The trial of the four suspects of last year's Westgate terror attack in Nairobi has begun amid tight security at the Nairobi's High Court. All the four men of the Somali ethnic origin have been charged in connection with the Westgate Mall massacre where more than 67 people died and many others were critically injured. They are not accused of carrying out the actual terrorist attack but of lending support to the terrorist group. During the opening session of the trial, the judge heard a testimony from a guard who was outside the upmarket mall where the terrorists launched the attack. Witnesses at the Westgate Mall have described how the four terrorists stormed the ever-crowded shopping mall, firing and hurling grenades at the shoppers and staff at the complex. And according to security sources, including the US FBI, all the four terrorists died during the attack. But all along, Somali Islamist al-Shabaab militants have claimed responsibility for the attack, saying it was in retaliation to Kenya's decision to send our troops to Somalia to fight the Somali insurgents. And during the second day of the trial, court officials accompanied by the four handcuffed suspects visited the heavily destroyed shopping mall in order to help the court visualize the mall's layout. The trial judge, Daniel Ogencho. We just came to see the scene of crime. Yeah, we had witnesses talking about, uh, get, you know, men get talking about uh, loading bay, talking about Nakmat and what have you. So we really wanted to see those areas, those places that were damaged. But the accused lawyer Mbogwa Muridi claims the four accused have never been to the Westgate shopping mall and were therefore falsely charged. All our clients maintain that none of them have ever been to this building and this is their first visit. But according to the FBI investigators, the four gunmen who attacked the shopping mall were trained in Somalia before closing into Kenya four months before the September terror attack. They then spent some time training in a popular gym in Nairobi's busy estate of Isli, commonly known as Little Mogadishu, as they prepared to launch the Westgate terror massacre. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. If you have any questions or comments about our show or just want to get in touch with us, you're welcome to call us on plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero or email us at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa rise and shine. Africa Zorka. Africa Amuka. Rwanda has launched Kwibuka 20, a series of events leading up to the 20th commemoration of the genocide. It was marked by the lighting of the Kwibuka flame or flame of remembrance, which will travel through Rwanda's 30 districts before returning to Kigali on the 7th of April, the commencement of the national mourning period. Karamera has more from Kigali. About four kilometers out of Kigali city center, there lies Gisuzi Hills, on which genocide memorial site is located. 
It is from this very place where Rwandans converge every year on the 7th April to start genocide morning week. But 20 years on, after the genocide, authorities here say there is a need of reflection on the complicated journey the country has gone through and forge way forward. Therefore, observing this reflection by lighting a frame of remembering dubbed Kwibuka frame in local Kinyarwanda, that according to the culture and sports minister, Protemitari maintains momentum among Rwandans to safeguard developmental achievements the country has registered in the past 20 years. I'd like to urge all people here present as we start our commemoration activities 20 years after the genocide committed against the Tutsi in 1994. We should own everything we do. It's only through this process that we'll be able to set us free from tormented consequences left behind by genocide. And this might help us moving on with our preparations. It is the first time Rwandans begin genocide preparations in January by lighting a frame as part of genocide commemorations. Some survivors say it is yet another down for them to move forward. Uh, this particular flame for me, it means a lot. It means that uh, I've come very far in the darkness. Not only me, but we as Rwandans, we've come up very far. No hope to survive. We have no hope because of what happened here in this country in 1994. Genocide uh, against Tutsi. But it, it, it was no, it was not even the, the Tutsi only because uh, it, this this tragedy touched the Rwandans' hearts. So it was really hard to know if we. For us, we we thought we we, we couldn't even go very far like this in 20 years. But we thank God. It's just showing us that genocide was done. It gives everybody in this country how genocide genocide was done and the reason why for every, everybody in this country to know that genocide was committed. The Foreign Affairs Minister Ruiz Mushichuabo says the struggle to build the Rwanda which was left in the ashes in 1994 has not been that simple 20 years on adding the government is not ready to see things going astray. She says remembering carrying a unique message to everybody including non-Rwandans. The light of frame coincided with the newly established Indomunyarwanda program, meaning I am Rwandan, which according to the government aims at healing scars of genocide remain unseen in the people's hearts. The Kwibuka frame has been taken to all 30 districts in Rwanda, and this January end on the 7th April at the start of the genocide morning week this year. Silvanus Karemera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Tabisa Lohoko up next with the headlines. Central African Republic's new interim president, Catherine Zambapanza, set to take oath of office today. A new project to establish best practices for tackling stunting has been launched in Malawi. And South Africa signs a formal agreement with the British Council to work together to help improve the teaching of English to young children. Details at 9, Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine.
Thank you, Tabiso. South Africa's Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Ibrahim Ibrahim, will today brief the media about his discussions with the Yemeni government relating to the kidnapped South African Pierre Koki. Ibrahim visited Yemen for two days. Koki and his wife Yolandi had been held hostage by al-Qaeda militants since May last year. After extensive negotiations, Yolanda Koki was released earlier this month without payment of a ransom. However, a three million US dollars ransom is being asked for the release of her husband. Lila Machnas reports. Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Ibrahim Ibrahim, will today reveal the progress made during his two-day visit to Yemen. Department of International Relations and Cooperation spokesperson Nelson Guete says the deputy minister met with several Yemen government officials. All the meetings were related to the captivity of Mr. Pierre Koki. The next day he was involved in more meetings, all of which were aimed at securing the release of uh, Mr. Korki. Gwete says Ibrahim will explain in detail today how his visit to Yemen transpired and the efforts Ibrahim put into securing the release of Korki. He says government has played an active role with the government of Yemen in working towards the release of the Korki couple since they were kidnapped. On the day that the Korkis were kidnapped, we were informed of their situation and immediately we dispatched our ambassador in Saudi Arabia to travel to Yemen. Since then we have been involved in this matter working together with the other old players including the gift of the givers. The government sending Deputy Minister Ibrahim Ibrahim there uh, to interact physically and face to face with the government is only part of the broader effort. We need to keep in mind that uh, this is a very delicate situation. It is one uh, which can really get out of hand if not treated with sensitivity. The Gift of the Givers Foundation chairperson and founder Imtia Suleiman says last week they negotiated a three-week extension for the deadline of the ransom. The Al-Qaeda militants initially indicated they will kill Korki if they didn't receive the money by Saturday last week. Suleiman said yesterday, Al-Qaeda sent an SMS to Gift of the Givers liaison in Yemen asking where the ransom money from the South African government were as they heard in the Yemen media the South African government was going to negotiate with them and no one contacted them. Suleiman says they told the militants the South African government don't pay ransoms. The group then sent a photo of a bomb belt. Suleiman says they didn't threaten Corky and didn't divulge any information about Corky's health. Communications then broke down. At the time of the kidnapping, Corky was a teacher in Yemen while his wife did relief work in hospitals. The press briefing will start at 11 this morning. Leila Magnus, Pretoria. Global leaders gathering at an international forum in Davos, Switzerland, are being told they have a key role in ending hunger across the planet. The World Economic Forum has traditionally been a meeting place for the private sector and governments, but it is also an opportunity for international organizations like the United Nations to put its issues on the global agenda. The World Food Program is participating for the 10th year and is highlighting 
launching the Zero Hunger Challenge, the UN Secretary-General's initiative to end hunger in our lifetime. Daniel Dickinson has been speaking to WFP's Elizabeth Byers. WFP is at the World Economic Forum this year because zero hunger is everyone's business. This is uh, the 10th year at Davos for WFP. And the WEF is a unique event uh, where you can find innovative ideas and where almost all our partnerships are born. How are you working with the private sector? With around 842 million people on this planet suffering from chronic hunger, partnerships with the private sector, civil society and governments are vital to meet the zero hunger challenge. For WFP, this means partnerships that help us build healthier, stronger and, of course, more resilient communities in the countries where we work. On average, over the past five years, WFP private partners have ranked as WFP's ninth largest contributor with both cash and in-kind contribution. How central to discussions at Davos will Zero Hunger Challenge be? Is it a side event or do you think it's going to feature quite prominently? We hope that it will be permanent because at Davos, 2014, WFP will engage with the world's political, economic and business leader to discuss their role in supporting efforts to achieve the zero anger issue. We will not be able to attend, of course, without the support, the trust and the confidence of the private sector. Anger, malnutrition, poverty, gaps in primary education, just to name a few, they are key issues in the world right now. WFP has been going to Davos for 10 years now. Are you seeing any results? We have seen results. Major global companies such as Unilever, DSM, MasterCard have joined us and joined civil society in the quest for zero anger and WFP's involvement in the West is an opportunity to engage more with them and with new companies and new partners. All those partnerships were born at Davos. That was World Food Programme's Elizabeth Byers talking to Daniel Dickinson. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. It's exactly 8.38 Central African time. Africa Rise and Shine. Following the adoption of the new constitution early last year, Zimbabwe faces a daunting task of implementing the supreme law. This was revealed during the launch of the SADC Gender Protocol Barometer 2013 Zimbabwe in Harare yesterday. The Women Coalition of Zimbabwe made the call for at least 400 laws to be realigned with the new constitution in order to achieve certain millennium developmental goals such as number three. MDG3 calls for the gender equality and women empowerment by 2015. Simon Muchemwa has more. 
The Zimbabwean government risked missing the 2015 Millennium Development Goals deadline due to its failure to realign hundreds of laws. Following a historic referendum early 2013, Zimbabweans ushered in a new constitution. Zimbabwe was then being co-governed by a coalition of three political parties. However, after the July 31 election, which saw President Mugabe winning by 61% margin, constitutional processes have been stalled. As such, the Women's Coalition of Zimbabwe has urged the Zimbabwean administration to speed up the processes. During the launch of the SADAC Gender Protocol Barometer 2013 Zimbabwe in Harare Wednesday, Women's Coalition of Zimbabwe said more than 400 laws need to be realigned with the new Supreme Law. Emedi Gunduza, Women's Coalition of Zimbabwe Acting National Coordinator, said the gender protocol requires a sound legal framework. Let me talk about its mandate. The protocol looks into the integration and mainstreaming of gender issues into the SADAC program of action and community building initiatives, which are very important to the sustainable development of the SADAC region. Another mandate is that it aims to provide the empowerment of women to eliminate discrimination and to achieve gender equality by harmonizing the development of uh, and implementation of gender responsive legislations, policies, programs and projects. In August 2008, heads of state of Southern African Development Community, SADAC, adopted the groundbreaking SADAC protocol on gender and development. This followed a concerted campaign by NGOs under the umbrella of the SADAC Protocol Alliance. By the time the 2013 Heads of State Summit was held in Malawi, 13 countries had signed and 12 countries had ratified the SADAC Gender Protocol. With two years to go, time is ticking for nations such as Zimbabwe to achieve targets for the attainment of gender equality. Speaking at the launch, the European Union ambassador to Zimbabwe, Aldo de la Risha, said Zimbabwe is facing a legal challenge. As it was said already, much still needs to be done to enforce the new constitution provision, provisions to make them reality for the women of Zimbabwe. And realignment of laws is an essential element to enable women to enjoy the increased rights provided the Rhine and the promotion of public awareness of the Constitution. There is a, a matter of information and communication, an effort of information and communication, which is also very important. As one of the countries that are signatory to the SADAC protocol, a yearly publication is made providing invaluable information to all stakeholders on issues of women's rights and gender. The barometer features new statistics and information compiled with accurate and updated information from research-based institutions, government records, and statistical bodies. According to the Gender Minister Opam Chinguri, all gender laws are being mainstreamed. Ladies and gentlemen, we have yet another opportunity of ensuring that the whole legal framework in Zimbabwe is gender sensitive. We need to take advantage of the current process of aligning of laws to the Constitution. 
We need to work together as government, civil society, and development partners to ensure that gender is mainstreamed in all laws. Meanwhile, Dr. Sifa Zinumwe, Chief Executive Officer of National Association of the Non-Governmental Organizations, said Zimbabwe has one of the best constitutions despite challenges. I think we have one of the best constitutions in the world. I think what is required of us is to realign our laws which are outside of our constitution. It's not a, it's not a daunting um, process. It can be done. Uh, if we have done and they have a good constitution, so our laws got to have to be re- realigned with that constitution. And we can do it as a people in Zimbabwe, our government and the civil society can work together to do that. Speaking during the launch, one of the Zimbabwe Human Rights Commissioners, Kwanele Muriel Jirira, said Zimbabwe should start acting now. For us to really move ahead in terms of gender issues, we need to begin to seriously commit to the implementation of what we agree. If we say there are laws on improving women's lot or gender equality in terms of equity and equality issues, we really must be seen to be doing what we say we have ratified. The SADAC Gender Protocol Alliance was established in 2005 as a network of networks and campaigned for the adoption and implementation of the SADAC Protocol on Gender and Development. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. For comments about our show, you're welcome to send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at our Twitter handle at Channel Africa 1. You can also send us an SMS to plus 27 you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.45 Central African time, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg. Up next, Tavisole Huko. Zimbabwe has clinched a $53.4 million grant from the African Development Bank to carry out emergency work on water and power utilities. The agreement signed yesterday will also extend to institutional development, transport, youth and tourism. Zimbabwe's decade-long infrastructural challenges have been worsened by the fact that it's not eligible for loans from the World Bank and International Monetary Fund due to its areas. Shingai Nyoka reports. 54 million U.S. dollars seems like a drop in the ocean against the myriad of problems Zimbabwe is facing. Independent estimates say $8 billion is needed to rehabilitate the country's decaying infrastructure. In an agreement signed on Wednesday, a multi-donor trust supported by Australia and six European countries pledged $39.9 million for emergency infrastructural work. Members of South African Labour Union, AMCU, employed in the gold sector, are expected to report to work this morning. This comes after the Labour Court in Johannesburg ordered that members of the union not continue with their planned strike action schedule for today until a judgment is delivered on the matter on the 30th of this month. Strikes were scheduled to take place at various gold mine operations countrywide. The union is demanding an entry-level monthly salary of $1,150. Sepo Pahane has more. 
Anton Maybeck, representing the Chamber of Mines, told the court that on the 10th of September last year, the National Union of Mine Workers, Solidarity and UASA entered into a two-year wage agreement with the Chamber. He says the wage agreement was extended to other unions, including AMCU. Maybeck argued that the planned strike by AMCU was unprotected because AMCU was bound by clause 17 of the wage agreement, which said that for the period of the operation of the agreement, no union should embark on a strike. Anglo-Platinum mines in South Africa's Limpopo province have, however, been affected by the strike. Hundreds of workers have downed tools at the uh, Twickenham and Mutolo concentrator platinum mines. Amku leader in the province, Zip Mabilu, says non-striking workers have not been stopped from going to work. Our members at Twickenham Platinum Mine, as you can hear in my background, they are busy singing. They've honoured the call for the strike for the living wage of 12500 The members are protesting or picketing peacefully here outside the gates under a watchful eye of uh, tight security. We as AMCO have observed very disciplined behaviour and conduct by our members. There are some people who are not our members that have gone through to work. They were not halted or disturbed in any way or another. Global leaders gathering at an international forum in Davos, Switzerland, are being told that they have a key role in ending hunger across the planet. The World Economic Forum has traditionally been in a meeting uh, place for the private sector and governments. But it is also an opportunity for the international organizations like the United Nations to put its issues on the globe. The World Food Program's Elizabeth Baez. WSP is at the World Economic Forum this year because zero hunger is everyone's business. This is uh, the tenth year at Davos for WSP. Financial indicators: the U.S. dollar 10.84, South African rand at 8.80, Botswana pulas at 5.51, Zambian kwachas. It's also trading at 0.60. To the British pound and at 0.73 to the euro. Commodities now $1,234. Platinum $1,451 an ounce. Brand crude on 95 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tamit Uza. Let's start with Sokam. Democratic Republic of Congo beat a spirited young Burundi team 2-1 to advance to the quarterfinals of the African Nations Championship at the Peter Mukaba Stadium last night. Coming into this match, DRC were third on the lock and needing a win to further progress, while a draw for Burundi would have done the trick. However, it wasn't to be as DRC showed their intent from the first minute. Meanwhile, DRC Congo assistant coach Papi Kimoto says lack of experience and complacency cost them. Meanwhile, in the other Group T game in Bloemfontein last night, Gabon were held to a 2 all draw by debutant Mauritania. All the time in the quarterfinals, Libya will exchange the blows with DRC, while Gabon will, exchange, will be up against Ghana on Sunday. And now in tennis, South African 
Davis Cup star Raven Klassen and his American partner Eric Butorak continued their dream run at the Australian Open yesterday. Klassen and Butorak unseeded one through to the finals of the first Grand Slam of the year when they outplayed eight-seed Daniel Nesta of Canada and Ned Nemonjic of Serbia, 6-2-6-4. The South African-American team kept their composure and health to win the second set, 6-4, and deservedly end themselves as sport in the final. This is the first Grand Slam final for both Klassen and Butorak and it was Klassen's first Grand Slam semi-final appearance. Butorak reached the double semi-finals in Melbourne in 2011 so came onto the court today with some added confidence and advice for his partner. And now in cricket, the South African Proteus women cricket team beat Pakistan by seven wickets to pull off a double win in the T20 segment of the Qatar International Women's Cricket Championship that was played in Doha last night. They also secured their place in the final against the same team at the West End Park International Cricket Stadium tomorrow. The bowlers once again put their hands up, bundling Pakistan out for 96 in their 20 overs. Earlier in the day, Lizelli scored 53 of 52 balls to lead South Africa to a nine-wicket victory over Ireland with 34 balls remaining. And in hockey, the world's 11-ranked South African women's hockey team and world number four Australia drew three all last night in the first of the three test matches between the two sides at the Hartley Vale Stadium in Cape Town this weekend. The teams were leveled on one all at halftime. South Africa missed Australia's hockey rules in the second test at Hartley Vale tomorrow at 7 p.m. Central African time before the third international takes place on Saturday at 4 p.m. at the same venue. A six-test series starts from the South Africans against Belgium on Sunday, January the 26th. And finally, in boxing, lack of funding for the Swaziland Boxing Association, Swaba, has seen an upset trip to Bulgaria for Swazi boxers to compete and sharpen their skills. Cancelled. After dominating the sporting landscape in years gone by, boxing in Swaziland is diminishing. Boxers remain inactive and lack of interest to pursue their careers. Swaziland's boxing analyst, Bodwa Mbingo, analyzed Swaba's predicament. Yeah, it's been quiet. Uh, they recently had a tournament. Uh, they hosted a tournament over the weekend. Uh, the turnout was poor because uh, boxers seemingly no longer have interest in their activities because they've been too quiet. Okay, as as we speak, uh, they've been arranging to attend an, a competition in Bulgaria, but seemingly funds are not permitting. So they've just uh, told us that they will no longer be going there. Private companies and the government have declined to find Swaba. Hence, there is no budget to carry any meaningful initiation. Bingo elaborates. The situation these days in Swaziland, it's it seemingly... Uh, Private companies are not are not forthcoming with sponsorships, so they, all the associations have to rely on government funding uh, through the sports council. And apparently, there is still uh, a problem between government uh, and the sports council pertaining to the new board. Lulu, what are you saying? The name of uh, this boxing? Uh, it's not uh, Mbingo. It's, it's Mbingo. Mbingo. Yes, <laughs> it's Swati. <laughs> Okay, thanks Lulu, <laughs> and that's your sports update on Channel Africa. And back to Lulu Gabu. <laughs> Africa, rise and shine. Africa, so
Afrika amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shine at the Sawa, UN envoy warns of a high risk of genocide in the Central African Republic. Rebels in South Sudan say they are ready to lay down their arms and the first phase of Syria peace talks conclude in Geneva. That wraps up Africa, Raz and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.co.za za or tweet us and follow us on twitter at channel africa one or send us an sms to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five taking us to the top of the hour for the news and on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern africa is mayway with nanan Ka ka ka